Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Commonwealth Magazine podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm your co-host, Jim Aloisi. Uh, and I'm Fred Salvucci, the victim. <laughs> it's, uh, we're delighted to be able to bring you a two-part podcast. Um, this is part one with former State Transportation Secretary Fred Salvucci. Fred was Transportation Secretary for all 12 years of the Dukakis administration, a time when uh, the state continued um, what actually had begun um, under Alan Altshuler and Frank Sargent, which was a, a rethinking of its transportation priorities and a renewal of transit. Um, so our, our thinking today is that we would um, have this two-part series with Fred uh, generally on the theme of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I think that's an old Fellini, was that, that's a movie with... Uh, Vittorio De Sica. Vittorio De Sica. Mm. All right. You, you might have a little Italian stuff going on in this podcast <laughs> because of me and Fred. But, um, so the yesterday, today, and tomorrow, I think, would be a good way to frame this. And to begin by talking about yesterday, um, I have often said that I thought that even though many people associate the big dig with Fred because it, it began with uh, when he was secretary, um, the, uh, the, the ability to actually do the big dig, uh, that the major achievements in his tenure as secretary that sometimes people overlook are achievements connected with transit, the rebuilding of the Orange Line, the extension of the Red Line to Alewife, the reconstruction of the red line at Harvard Square um, are among the great transit achievements of that time. I wanted to ask Fred, A, if he agreed, and B, what can we learn today as we're thinking about Green Line extension, if we're thinking about expanding strategically uh, our transit network, are there lessons to be learned from those experiences that still hold uh, some vibrancy today? Yeah, well... Um if God's going to make you uh, lucky or smart, uh, choose lucky. Uh, so I, uh, uh, working for Mike Dukakis was a great privilege. Working for Kevin White before that was a great privilege. And following uh, Frank Sargent and Alan Alshuler was uh, terrific because they, they really began the process, and I was able to participate in that uh, from the East Boston Little City Hall and with Kevin and then as transportation advisor uh, in terms of really changing uh, transportation from a totally top-down uh, set of decisions that have been made uh, without any discussion with the community, without any concern for what impacts they were going to have. Uh, so we, a lot of us participated in working against uh, the Southwest Expressway that was going to rip through the middle of Jamaica Plain and uh, the inner belt through Cambridge, the, the original location for the tunnel that was going to go right next to Maverick Square, all of those extremely disruptive uh, kind of transportation versions of the West End uh, where, uh, you know, the, the city's, some of the most interesting neighborhoods in the city were just going to be totally disrupted. Working... Initially, uh, around the negative agenda of just stopping bad things and then working towards what do we want instead. And uh, <clears throat> the orange line and the red line were, were uh, really important uh, 
the, the third element in that was uh, the, the blue line to Lynn, which uh, looked like it was poised to happen. There seemed to be a lot of support. And then there was a change in the mayoralty in, in Lynn, and the new mayor was against it. So it kind of lost its moment. Uh, the moment may come again. But, but it, that was a great, uh, a great period to be part of. And, and the, uh, uh, the trick in shifting from... If we had just succeeded in stopping bad things and not gotten some good things to happen, the bad things would have just come back, you know. Uh, and uh, the uh, <clears throat> the changes of actually, uh, and here Alan Altshuler gets a huge amount of the credit uh, uh, with Tip O'Neill, who was the key guy in the in the Congress. The, Getting the right from the federal government to take money that was going to go into destructive highways and use an equal amount of that money to build transit, it did several things at once. It gave us really good transit investments. It also said the money's gone. That decision's been made. And we never could have had the red line and the orange line had the state gone forward with the highways. So we we got rid of some real threats, but we built some things that, that were really positive uh, with hindsight, I mean, the Southwest Corridor was fantastic, uh, but I certainly didn't see the gentrification coming. I mean, when we were working, and Tony Pangaro and Ken Crook and I were key people on that project, working block by block with neighborhood people on, okay, we stopped the road, what do we, what do we want it to be instead? And building not just the Orange Line, but all the parks that went along with it, uh, the, the whole idea was working with those communities, which were, you know, largely working class community, lots of Latinos. And we thought we were working for those communities. And uh, a couple of years ago, when the Dominican grocery uh, closed and a Whole Foods took its place, they said, wow, this is, you know, it's. I'm glad we stopped the highway, and I'm glad it's a nice transportation corridor. But the the lower-income people who it was supposed to be for have really been priced out of those neighborhoods. And that uh, we didn't see that coming. We didn't solve it. There, there were some people who were— there was a fellow named Albert Bishop in, in Roxbury that was really seeing this as an opportunity uh, to build— uh, new housing and businesses that were owned by the community. Uh, Ralph Smith uh, did the housing in the near the Melnia Cass. Uh, those were really important things, uh, but there needed to be more. With hindsight, there, there needed to be more of that. I think sometimes um, transit can facilitate gentrification, but I think it's it's you know it's complex. There are a lot of factors involved in that. I take your point. Um, I want to go back to red to blue to Lynn, which you mentioned, um, which didn't happen, and which was made more difficult in the intervening years because of some fellow put up a, a housing development near the, the existing part of the existing line. Have you thought about the idea that has some currency these days of connecting blue to Lynn by commuter rail with the transition at Wonderland? Is that something that you've thought about and that you think makes sense or doesn't make sense? Uh, 
I think it does make sense in the, you might ultimately want both, but what could happen with the commuter rail is if the agenda that the the MBTA Fiscal Control Board has started to talk about of converting uh, a commuter rail system that is only for suburbanites coming into the city in the morning and going out at night into a more European-style regional rail system that provides a lot of stops in the urban areas and carries at least three to four times as many people as commuter rail does today. I think that's the right direction for us to be going regionally. And if you envision that happening on the Newburyport branch, you know, you'd see, uh, you know, stop at Sullivan, you'd see stops in Everett and Chelsea and Revere, and uh, as well as at Wonderland and at the stop that they're absurdly talking about having only for one developer up in Lynn, the old so-called GE stop. But making that a real public uh, transit route, uh, that that does two things. One, it creates much more value. Uh, all of, there's a lot of land there that could be repurposed for, for higher use without a lot of displacement and provide jobs that would help keep uh, you know, Everett and Chelsea and Lynn uh, housing accessible to yeah. opportunities. So I think there's a there's a great opportunity there uh, that also would bring with it more allies. Uh, ultimately, you still might want the blue line to reach Lynn. There's probably room in that corridor for both. But I, I think that the there's a better chance to get the, the upgrading of the commuter rail earlier. Mm-hmm. And I want to be clear, I'm not being negative on commuter rail. Uh, if we didn't have the commuter rail system, uh, the commuter rail system carries as many people to downtown Boston as the whole interstate highway system. If we didn't have it, the, the highways would be totally gridlocked. The commuter rail, even in its current state, plays an important role, but it could play a much bigger role. It's, mm-hmm. it's a huge asset, and and I've, I've seen what they did in London with the uh, so, so-called London Overground, where they took uh, you know, really minimally used uh, commuter rail services that were fairly bad, yeah. run by the national government, and Transport for London took them over and upgraded the stations, put new equipment, electrified them, and they're carrying, you know, 10 to 15 minute frequency and huge numbers of people. They're like additions to the subway. I want us, when we, t- when we move segue to today, I want to talk a little bit about regional rail. So, but I have another, I have one other t- yesterday question for you, mm-hmm. which is, do you ever, did you ever think, I've never asked you this question before, did you ever think about building a bus and HOV only tunnel to the airport as part of the big dig? Do you see that in the, Actually, not too distant future, we actually need to be thinking, if we're going to have the Silver Line work, if we're really going to have the Seaport District unlocked, then we need to think seriously about a bus HOV-only tunnel from the Seaport to Logan. Um, the, the fellow who really thought about that was Alan Altshuler. He proposed a two-lane uh, tunnel to Logan, uh, kind of like the alignment that got built, it came, it did not go through East Boston, it went right to Logan Airport, so there was no displacement associated with it. Uh, and it was basically for 
buses and trucks. Uh, it was an interesting idea. Uh, the there was so much more support for doing w what we did uh, that I I think it it was more feasible. It was, ironically, it was more feasible to do a bigger project than than the smaller one, the, the more modest one that Alan talked about. Uh, if if I could imagine another tunnel to Logan, though, I would think of it as a, a we're getting into the day after tomorrow, not even tomorrow, but uh, I would think of it as a rail connection uh, that would allow you to go from Western Mass all the way through the city with stops in Alston and Back Bay and South Station and Logan and then yeah, having it be, uh, uh, if you're thinking about a different world where there's lots of commitment to rail, uh, we actually included in the uh, commitments that went around with the big dig, there were supposed to be studies of a north-to-south rail connector and a south station to Logan rail connector, and they were both supposed to get looked at and evaluated, and the Logan one got sort of uh, forgotten about. But if you think about the the connections to to the whole state, the, the, the Springfield, Worcester, and, and, you know, eventually Alston, Back Bay corridor, uh, you get a lot more capacity with rail. If you're going to spend the kind of money it takes to get another tunnel, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd go for a rail tunnel. So, Fred, I wanted to ask, with, with your perspective, um, knowing that we, as a state, seem to have turned a corner when we stopped some highway projects and instead put the money into the Orange Line and some other projects like that, what do you think um, ended that inertia that we had, that positive inertia? Like, why did that not continue happening as far as expansion of the transit system? And um, once once the highways had been, quote unquote, vanquished, you know, and, and, and the state of good repair issues that, that have come back, that we didn't keep those new assets in the type of repair that we're you know now dealing with um, daily, um, almost catastrophes um, during, you know, peak hours. Yeah, well, partly, uh, of course, there were all these commitments that were part of the big dig, uh, the, the the Green Line extension that's only now beginning, the blue to red connector that we're still talking about, but it hasn't happened. You were supposed to be able to ride on that thing in uh, 2010. Uh, the uh, the new equipment on the Orange Line was supposed to be purchased in 1995. A whole bunch of critical transit investments that were tied to the big dig, uh, the early Weld administration required it. Uh, the, when Soutini was Secretary of Environmental Affairs, the state's, uh, uh, you know, the, the ventilation shaft uh, permits for the big dig had these requirements built into them by Soutini. Uh, and they were uh, inserted into the Clean Air Act response of the state. Uh, and then there was just never any follow-through from the transportation agencies. It just seemed like, uh, uh, well, uh, don't mean to be offensive here, but he was, his government was almost schizophrenic. He had these incredibly good environmental uh, secretaries. Uh, Soutini is, you know, still a top-shelf professional. 
Uh, you know, Salucci had very good environmental people, but on the transportation side, they were like throwbacks to the let's build the highways. Uh, and they, you know, they, they were still in their hearts unhappy that the, the highways hadn't been built. So, and they, they dismantled a lot of the capacity at, at the MBTA, the competency to build things. Uh, the, the MBTA in the 1980s was, I, I think it's fair to say, the most competent construction agency in the state. The people who built the red line, the orange line, and operated them were just really, really good. I mean, Jim O'Leary was a fantastic general manager of the T. Uh, Frank Kevill. Frank Kevill, who passed away too young, was the construction guy, and Peter McNulty was his deputy. They were really excellent people. Tom Glenn followed Jim O'Leary and really was focusing on customers in a way that was really helpful at the T. And then there was almost an anti-MBTA bias within the transportation uh, agencies uh, after Bill Weld where they they literally dismantled the capacity that was there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it takes a long time to develop competency in a government agency to build things, and it's even more difficult to operate them well. And uh, even if by the time Jane Swift was governor, even if she had wanted to do a lot of transit, she didn't have the capacity in the government to follow through on it. That's got to be built and nurtured. Uh, we're, I hope we're seeing it now uh, around the, the revisiting of the Green Line uh, with recruiting a really competent guy in who knows how to build things and stripped out a billion dollars of cost from uh, a project that had sort of gotten out of control. And it's, it's extremely important and exciting to see the Green Line extension actually happen. Uh, but behind the scenes, it, it's also extremely important to see competency back in a public agency that knows how to how to contract and how to manage contracts, and I, I I see the green line is beginning to to rebuild that kind of kind of competency in the agency, and that's a good thing. So I think transitioning to the present, but also touching on some of those lessons, um, a lot of what you were talking about was capacity for capital projects, um, but there's also the incremental. Um, expansions that are needed um, and the state of good repair. And I often wonder why um, we think so much about tying those kinds of expenses and improvements to the big projects like the Big Dig as opposed to doing them as they're needed. And I wonder if that's just a function of and, – and I ask this because of the current climate of the federal funds not being there. So is is that tendency a function of federal funds were there and that's just the way it was done? Um, or is or, or human nature, um, or is there something else? And, and how do how do we struggle with that in the present climate of federal funds not being as available for transit and transportation projects? Well, I, I think that it's extremely important to fight to get the federal funds back on the table. I mean, the the outright racism against President Obama that led the Congress for eight years to never approve a long-term transportation bill was just absurd. I mean, the 
Transportation funding from Washington has typically been authorized in four to six to eight-year so-called authorization bills. Those those used to be 100 percent votes, Democrats, Republicans, bipartisan. Every state wanted the public works program to proceed. And over time, the program became broader. You know, transit was added, environmental protection was added, labor protection was added. It's a really solid uh, program. Finally, in the eighth year of Obama, they got, I think it's a six-year bill through. Uh, and now Trump comes in and it's just vague what he wants to do. It's all kinds of inconsistent stuff. Uh, and I, I think we need a bipartisan effort to say, come on, we've got, a, we've got this bill that Obama gave us. Let's fully fund it. If you want to add more to it, that's fine. But we don't need a shell game where you introduce some new gimmick and then you take away what's worked for, you know, going on 50 years. So I, I think a, a, a reinvigoration of, of, of the federal role is very important. The, 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 the kind of money required for, for large expansions of the transit system are going to be much more feasible if the feds are at the table. And, uh, you know, we've got, uh, you know, Governor Baker is a popular Republican governor. Uh, roughly 30 of the governors across the country are Republicans. They all get screwed if Trump's plan happens because they get left holding the bag with all of the infrastructure responsibility. And Trump's talking about reversing the funding roles, taking what used to be 80% federal and 20% local and saying, no, 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 it'll be 20% federal and you guys will put up the rest. Well, the states don't have that kind of money. A majority of the governors are Republicans. They, they ought to be outraged that their guy is proposing that. Uh, so it, it ought to be possible to get a, uh, a bipartisan coalition to say, come on, we fight about lots of things, but we've never fought like this about transportation in the past. And let's 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 try to agree that this is an area where we where we need to work together. And the long lead times in transportation really require a bipartisan approach because you know you 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 conceive of a project, you do the environmental analysis, you do the engineering, then you construct it. Inevitably, you're going to go through some Democratic and some Republican uh, administrations, and if each new person says, I'm going to reinvent the world, all you're going to have is a lot of you know, policy talk in Washington and no action and no money. Uh, because they, the, 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 the hidden part of this, the hidden part of the iceberg, is really competency to get things done. And when you break the, the institutional capacity to program the money, to do the engineering, to, to build it, it takes time to restart it. And that, that's a little bit what happened with the Green Line. On the, when they finally got the Green Line moving, you know, it wasn't put together by people who had participated in building large things well. Uh, Frank Kevill, who was a great builder at the MBTA and, and really was, you know, the, the hero of the red and orange lines, uh, as a younger person, he had participated in the first Orange Line extension uh, north to Melrose. So 
he, they had practiced in a way for a long time and were very good at what they did. Uh, and that sort of break in competency that occurred early in the Weld administration kind of left this gap. Then when people tried to move forward with the Green Line, they ended up with a project that wasn't buildable, that hadn't been thought about. Uh, it, it, you know, it just, some engineers think if I can draw it, you can build it. It doesn't work that way. You've got to understand how to build things so that you can provide the engineering that allows a contractor to actually have the space they need to do their job. And that's that's a skill that was lost. And now it's it looks like it's back on the green line. That's really yeah. encouraging. Can I shift the topic a little bit to governance? I've been thinking about this and writing about recently my view, which is I think there's an issue about the governance at the T, meaning it's very state-oriented. And I'm not t I, I think the FMCB actually has largely because of the quality of the people who were appointed to it, has done a really good job sort of helping the T restore itself. But that's not a forever institution by law, uh, by design. I increasingly think we need to think about governance shift to empowering municipalities more, giving them legislatively the ability to put some real net new revenue into the system and in return, by giving them new powers, and in return for that, giving them more power um, to, to do real decision-making for the TIA. What's your view on empowering municipalities? Well, the, the statute that was pushed through uh, by Volpe and Peabody to, back in the days of the two-year governorship. This is the early 1960s. In 1964, the MBTA Enabling Act ultimately passed, and both Democrats and Republicans had, had pushed for it. Uh, that, that provided a very significant role for the cities and towns in paying for the operation and maintenance of the system in participating in a serious way in the budget process and in the capital programming process. Uh, so I would argue the cities had a significant role. What broke that role, uh, I, I think the single worst thing that happened to the MBTA statute was the so-called forward funding in the year 2000, where the, the numbers were phony. They, uh, they gave a... Uh, just to be clear, not, not the T's numbers, but the number, the, the numbers that the legislature the, was promoting. The, yeah. the, the legislature, the, the claim was that they were going to put 1% uh, of the statewide sales tax into the T. They actually lowered the assessment on the city of Boston uh, in order to buy the votes to get this through. And then when the smoke cleared, there wasn't enough money to run the T properly but they had given the T the ability to borrow, so they started borrowing to pay operating costs because they had no other option. It was, it was a totally flawed statute. And they, you know, responsibility also involves paying. By lowering the payment of the city of Boston, they also took away the role that the city had in participating in the capital program. I think that that statute is, is terrible and has to be revisited. Uh, but I think you want uh, – I don't think you want individual municipalities each trying to cut their own deal. I, I think you want to encourage them to work together in a regional entity, which is the 
the approach that that's what we had when we did the red line and the orange line, uh, and, and and we did a lot of smaller things too. So I I, th- I think that really worked. The the other piece of it is uh, most people live today and tomorrow, not in twenty years from now. So you have to pay a lot of attention to operating what you've got very well and improving the quality of service on the street. And that's a very important building block in in the credibility. If you think about the way the T is financed, uh, roughly $1 in three comes from the fare box. Roughly $2 in three comes from the taxpayers. And that's because you're supposed to be carrying riders. You're supposed to be treating them like customers, as Tom Glenn would say. You're supposed to be... uh, adding to the economy, you're supposed to be reducing pollution. There are all of the uh, so-called externality arguments why it's reasonable for two out of three dollars to go into the T. You have to look at that as the primary responsibility. We've got to provide some service for, to people today, and we've got to make the service tomorrow better than it was yesterday to build credibility. And in the first Dukakis administration, uh, we recruited Bob Kiley, God rest his soul, into the place. And he wasn't given – there was a lot of money to build things, but there wasn't a lot of money for state of good repair. The marching orders were, you got to run this system with what you got, and you got to run it well. And he ran it well. And the, 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 there are people at the T today – who I think are really committed to running it well. I mean, Jeff Jeff Conneville is, is yeah. terrific. He cares about his job. He works mm-hmm. very very hard. He he fights for the for the equipment he needs to to make sense out of the system. Uh, but that's that's a daily battle. But it, but keeping your eye on the ball. That that uh, sometimes we get too oriented to the to the cost side and how much is this costing and should there be a fare increase or shouldn't there. I want to see service get better. Uh, that That's, to me, the center of the argument is let's get service better. Uh, and uh, that that's what we did in, from 75 to 78, and that helped build the credibility uh, for why we were doing the red line and the orange line. If Kylie were not running, had not been running a very high-quality service, people would have been saying, what are you spending all that money extending this line for it's crummy. You're just going to give us more crummy stuff. You got to, you, you got to do well. The responsibility you have today, and I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm hopeful we're seeing that coming back with, particularly with Jeff. Yes. Good service begets funding. I think with that emphasis, uh, we'll wrap it up for, for this time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast in partnership with uh, Commonwealth Magazine and Transit Matters. Um, join us next time for part two of our discussion with uh, former Transportation Secretary Fred Sabucci. Thank you. Thank you.